Hey, New Life, how are you guys? Hey, it's really good to see you. I love coming up here. Uh, really great opportunity to, to be with you. And I always talk to Brett before I come up here. And because uh, I've been, I guess, every, either August or September, the last however many years. And uh, I always say to Brett, what do you want me to talk about when I come to New Life? And he always says the same thing. He says, talk about whatever's on your heart, whatever God has placed on your heart, just bring that to, to our people. Uh, but this time I really pushed him and I said, no, I, you tell me, like, what does New Life need to hear? What is the topic that I could talk about that would be good for the community right now? And he said, um, talk about suffering. So if this is not any fun today, it's Brett's fault. Uh, he said, talk about suffering. And I was like, oh, that'll be great. Let's talk about that. That'll be good. And I actually think it's a good topic because um, it's real and it's relevant and people are having to deal with some stuff. And I like to talk about things that are relevant and matter. And so I think this is one of those topics. So I want to talk about suffering today and not just suffering, but um, I want to talk about persecution. The idea that we, we, we would be persecuted for, for what we believe and, and talk about that, why that matters uh, today. So in the U.S., we don't talk about persecution a lot, especially when you talk about our faith, because we don't see it as we don't see that we receive persecution uh, as much as you might in other countries. But the idea of persecution, basically the definition of persecution, is going to be ill will or uh, oppression aimed at one group from maybe from another group. Um, so we're used to the idea of persecution around race in this country, that we would oppress a group of people historically uh, based on their racial background. We, 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 we've seen videos of that. You have documentaries that people have written about that. There's a lot of history on that in our country that a, a group is persecuted for their skin color. There's also persecution of political beliefs. You see that all over the world. We probably have a little bit of history in that of, in our in our country as well, where we would say, "Well, this view is out of bounds. Therefore, we will oppress these people um, and, and and persecute these people." And really, um, there are views now that if you articulate them out loud, people will say, "Oh, that's a political view." And there's some persecution around that. Brett said to me, "Remember, you're talking to people who work for the federal government, so um, they are told you have to believe these things. You have to sign on with these things." at work and, and not all of them line up with their faith, those things, you know. And so um, I know this is real for, for a lot of people in this room that you deal with some stuff. Um, so there's maybe racial persecution, there's, uh, political persecution, but there's also religious persecution. Um, and we don't think there's a lot of that in this country, but there's a long history of it in Christianity in particular. And it can be traced all the way back to about uh, 64 AD, if you go way back in history. The guy who is emperor of Rome at the time is Nero, and Nero is historically just a little crazy. And so Nero uh, starts to persecute the Christians because the Christians were different and weird. And they believed different things about sex and about God and about money and about poverty and about how they should live and what they should worship and what they should do. The Christians were just different. And Nero eventually starts persecuting them. He burns a section of Rome and blames it on the Christians. And so during that persecution that starts there, people like Peter and Paul both die in that persecution. They're martyred during that time. Um, it's weird to think that he would take this one group and blame them because they're different. But think about how we react towards, say, like the Amish, okay? You have no problem with the Amish. I, I doubt anybody here has got some serious beef with the Amish, right? They're different than you. 
They don't use electricity. They just little buggies. Their hair's different. Their clothing's different. And you look at it and you go, well, that's kind of weird. Those people over there, that's different. Whatever. Fine. You guys go do you. That's the great thing about our country. I don't have to work. But, but if we ever decided that they're different and it's bad and it's going to eventually affect society, we might start bringing the persecution. We might be like, they need to stop doing what they're doing in our neighborhoods and that kind of thing, right? It might, it might get to that point. Well, it was a little bit like that with the early Christians. They are persecuted. This pops up throughout the Roman Empire. Um, again, in around 90 AD, it pops up. And around 90 AD is when the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written. And there are seven letters written at the beginning of that from, from God, Jesus, through the hand of John, written to seven different churches that are all in Western Turkey. One of those letters I'm going to read to you in a minute, uh, it was to the church that's in the city of Smyrna. Um, and, and, and it was a church that was about to experience some persecution, and Jesus was letting them know that it's coming. Um, Smyrna... Uh, I, I had the opportunity to go there and so, see Western Turkey last summer and this summer. And we shot some video in, in the remains of Smyrna. And, uh, and, and, and I want to I show it to you. And we're gonna, I'll tell you a little story on this video about someone that was persecuted and eventually killed in ancient Smyrna. Watch this video. here in Smyrna, one of the few great cities of antiquity that remains a great city until this day. Smyrna is now known as Izmir, but this is the church that Jesus had nothing but praise and encouragement for. They were surviving in the middle of a pressure cooker, and it's worth noting that of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to, only the church of Smyrna still exists, still in the middle of a pressure cooker 20 centuries later. As a city, the ancient author Aristides compared Smyrna to the mythical Phoenix as it was repeatedly destroyed by earthquakes and invasions, but was repeatedly rebuilt and reborn over and over. Many scholars believe the name Smyrna was connected to the word myrrh, which was one of its main exports. It was a sweet smelling spice that's placed on the bodies of the dead. Jesus himself received myrrh by one of the wise men who visited him upon his birth. The city was known in the ancient world as the birthplace and death place of the great poet Homer, the bard who composed the world-changing epic poems, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Jesus promises church in Smyrna they would receive a crown as a reward for their endurance under constant pressure. The symbol was apt as a crown because the crown was embossed boldly on all of Smyrna's coinage and the city itself was known as the crown of the region, perhaps because of the evocative shape of the crown of the Acropolis that sat on top of Mount Pagos. John didn't know it when he transcribed this letter from Jesus to Smyrna, but his own close friend and student, Polycarp of Smyrna, would be caught up in one of the most intense periods of pressure in Smyrna's history. Just over the hill from the old Acropolis, now called the Catafacale, is the site where Polycarp died, a very old man at age 86. He had faithfully led the church at Smyrna for, for generations since Jesus' commendation. But when local governments decided to crack down on the church, they focused on its most visible member, Polycarp. 
the magistrate who was assigned to take the elderly Polycarp to his execution was ashamed by how poorly they were treating this old man. And he offered to let Polycarp off with a warning if he would just throw a pinch of incense and publicly state that Caesar is Lord. Several generations earlier, this sort of proclamation was undertaken voluntarily by those who wanted a leg up in the Roman world and wanted to show off how much they loved Rome. However, in the generations since the voluntary nature of this worship, it had descended into a mandatory action that is required of the government of all citizens. Only Christians resisted this public worship of Caesar as Lord. So when Polycarp refused this easy out, the magistrate became angry and threw him out of the court. Polycarp, undaunted, simply walked on his own all the way to his own execution. The arena was already red with the blood of other massacred Christians, but the crowd was pumped for the prime event, Polycarp. The crowd was chanting, away with the atheists, which was the, their name of the Christians who wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And so the magistrate, once more attempting to spare Polycarp, asked him to join in with the chant and just say, away with the atheists. Polycarp just thought about this for a moment and he went into the arena and he pointed at the entire crowd and he said, away with you atheists. And in time, Polycarp would be proved correct. The dominant cultural, so impressive, so on the inexorable side of history, faded away and the church at Izmir still exists. So through the hand of John, Jesus writes a letter to the church in Smyrna before the Polycarp incident. And it says this, Revelation chapter 2, I'll start with verse 8 and we'll put a couple verses on screen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus warns that persecution is coming for the church. You hear about it then in Polycarp within a generation there in that church. Um, and it continues on in the Roman Empire off and on until Constantine becomes a Christian in like 315 or something A.D. And once he becomes a Christian, persecution dies down as Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. But it pops up again over the years, uh, the rise of Islam in about the seventh century. Uh, Christians are starting to be killed because of that. Uh, you see it in, if you've ever seen the movie Silence and you hear, uh, see or have read the book about Christian missionaries who went to Japan and the persecution they experienced there in the 1600s. You can read about persecution of Christians under um, the former Soviet Union and things that went on there. Uh, over the last hundred years or so. Um, and, and even to this day, there's persecution happening in various parts of the world. In fact, 750 miles east of Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, is the city of Malatya. And on April 18th, 2007, three Christian leaders named uh, Tilman, Ur, and Nichati, these three men uh, 
led a Bible study with five local, uh, five local young men. And, and as they were leading this Bible study, the, the, the young men from the community um, grabbed these guys and, and held them down and, and, and tied them to a chair and things like that. And then the police were called. And as the police were approaching, these young men killed these three Christian leaders. Um, I know about that story. It was a bit of an inter- international incident, but I know about that story because I know a woman who was living there at the time when that happened and was a teenager, and she told me about it. Um, but those are people dying for their faith, dying because they believe in Jesus in a, in a country like Turkey now uh, just a few years ago. And even in 2018, a lot of the Christians who had been living in, in Smyrna, in Izmir, uh, had to leave, leave Izmir as some persecution from the, the, the government came upon them and they had to leave and some of them are just now getting back to Izmir. So it is happening all over the world. It's very easy to believe then that it's not really happening here, uh, but, I, but I think it, it has and, and will happen here. In fact, I think there's a couple principles to get out of this letter, uh, and, and first off is this, persecution and suffering will definitely come. Persecution and suffering will definitely come. Listen to Revelation 2, 9, and 10. Again, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I mean, he's, he's, he tells them it's happening. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's a warning here to them, right? says, you're going to go this period of tribulation. He says 10 days. Now, this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, a genre that we don't really have anymore. But in that kind of literature, numbers can be symbolic. So 10 days may literally be 10 days, or it may be there is a period that will last for a while of tribulation, of persecution that is coming for you, and he's, he's letting them know. Um, and we have this idea then that that, that kind of persecution is not we're not going to experience like, like Jesus will protect us from that. Like if we come to Jesus, we're going to be hashtag blessed and then no one's going to hurt us. We're not going to have to suffer because Jesus is going to take care of us. But the truth is that's never been true in any time of Christian history. There's always been periods of unrest and suffering and pain and persecution for Christians. Um, it is basically baked into the Christian cake. Jesus promised that this would happen. Like if you look at Jesus's last Supper. So Jesus in the Gospels, he has, he's been leading his, his guys for years. They've been working together and he has one final meal with them before he is crucified. And he gives them a speech. Now, if this is your last speech that you're going to give people, wouldn't you give like a pep rally? Wouldn't you be like, hey, I'm not going to see you guys again, but here's what I want you to know. I need you to do this, 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 and this is going to happen. We're, we're going to be fine, whatever. It's going to be awesome. You'd want to encourage them. Well, if you go back and read what Jesus says to them in John chapter 13 through 16, it, it, he tells them some rough stuff. Listen to what he says, John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is what he tells his closest friends. The world is going to hate you. Verse, chapter 16, a few verses later, he says this, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
Jesus says to them, you're going to get put out of the synagogue. We don't get what that means, but to them, that's a big deal. The synagogue is the center of Jewish life, your, your faith, your social circle, your friend group, all of that. And you're going to be an outcast from that, he says. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to be cut off from your people. And eventually, people are going to kill you. And when they do it, they're going to say that they're killing you for Jesus. For, well, not for Jesus, for God. They're going to say, we love God, therefore we should kill you. This is, he tells them, this is what's going to happen to you. And these are Jesus' closest followers. So from the very beginning, his inner circle is told, yeah, it's going to go bad for you, bro. Like, it's going to go very bad. And he lets them know it's coming. Now, does that stuff happen to us now in the modern day? I don't know. But we do need to pay attention. Whenever you see a group of people and we think of them as weird, just notice that. And notice when it when it devolves to not only are they weird, they're inferior, worse than, bad, a problem needs to be eliminated. This is what happened in Germany in the 1930s. The Jews were different. They dress differently. They act differently. They spend money differently. They talk differently. Their, Their hair is different. And it didn't take long for that's different and it's weird and it's bad and it's a threat and we need to get rid of it. This is what happened uh, in, in, in Germany. Now, is that going to happen here to Christians? I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet. But I do think there's some interesting signs that we should pay attention to. I, I heard about this concept over the last couple of years called the Overton Window. You've, maybe you've heard of it. The Overton Window is a way of describing the mainstream views that most people hold about what is good and right and acceptable. So think about in the center of the Overton Window is policy. We make it a law and say, this is what we all believe, therefore we're going to make a law about it. On the edge of the Overton window, you have, this is popular. It may not be a law, but it's basically what we all believe. So anything that you could put in the category of the average American, we all kind of believe these things about life and freedom and pursuit of happiness and all that, is all in the Overton window. Stuff outside the window is things like, well, that makes sense, but it's not really a popular view, or well, I guess that's acceptable uh, a view, or man, that's kind of radical, or that's unthinkable. We would never do that. Those are views that are outside of the acceptable kind of window that is the Overton window. Now, the reason I point that out is because over time, that window shifts in, in different directions and it becomes something different. So let me give you this example. This is going to be a little bit controversial, okay? So brace yourselves. Uh, it's a little bit controversial, but I don't live here. So if you don't like it, just tell Brett later. Uh, I'm going to just go home and you don't even have my email address. So... Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, I've, I've said this in, in my church, sure, we've, we've talked about it. Here's, here's a view. Just, just hang with me and don't get caught up in the specifics of it, but here's a view. In 2008, if you had gone anywhere and said, in this country, if you had said, marriage, what it is, the definition of marriage is, is a, covenant communi- uh, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. That is what marriage is. That's my definition. If you said that in 2008, that, that is... In the, that is policy in this country, and it is also popular. Like most people would agree with you. Yeah, that's, what, that's basically what marriage is, okay? By, and the president at the time, Obama, was saying that same thing. That's what marriage is. By 2012, Obama says, no, marriage is something different. Marriage is any two people, doesn't have to be a man or a woman, any two people who, want to, who love each other and want to join together for covenant or for, for the rest of their life, that, that's what marriage is. Okay? And then by 2015, it becomes law, it becomes policy in the country. 
So the window has shifted. If you say what you would have said in 2008, if you say that now, you are outside the window. The whole, the whole, the whole culture has moved on that issue. And if you say something different, you're now outside. So uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a subtle shift, but, but these things happen over time. Let me give you another example of one. Um, I came to Christ in the 90s or late 80s, uh, and I was part of a youth group in the 90s. And one of the things they would tell the teenagers in the youth group is, uh, don't have sex till you're married. So we learned that middle school, high school, okay, don't, shouldn't do this, don't have sex till you're married. If I had walked into my public high school in Florida and I had said, um, hey, I don't think I should have sex till I'm married because, you know, Jesus or whatever, um, most of my friends who are not Christians, they would have said, I mean, all right, dude, like if that, like I respect you, man, I respect that. It's a little weird, but I respect it. You, you, that's your, your call. I'm not gonna do that, but I respect that you do it. That's a different conversation today. If you say those same things today and you say, hey, I don't think, uh, I don't think I should have sex until I'm married, people will say things like, oh, you're being oppressive, you're repressing your sexuality, which is an idea we get from Freud, which is not exactly uh, a founded idea. I mean, we, we, we have this idea from Freud, oh, repression and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and not only are you, not only is it just like, oh, well, that's just your view, I have a different view than mine. People would say, oh, your view on that is bad. It is less moral. It is not a good thing for society to believe what you believe because the window has shifted. We've changed our views on that. Now, I'm not saying your understanding of marriage or celibacy or anything like that. No one's coming for you with a pitchfork right now about that. No one's going to come after you and say, oh, you're, you're a terrible person. Um, may, may, maybe they are. Maybe it's getting there. But it's not hard to imagine a time when it will, when it will get there. Um, we, we don't start by cutting off people's heads. We, we go there very slowly by thinking you're weird and different and then thinking that your, your weirdness and difference is bad. Um, so number one, perse persecution and suffering is definitely going to come. It's, it's baked into this thing. Uh, number two, persecution and suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you. We have this common idea that you get what's coming to you. Uh, it's actually a Hindu idea, the idea of karma, that you do good and good comes back to you, you do bad and bad comes back to you. That's not a Christian idea at all. I think the history of history would say uh, bad things happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad people. It doesn't exactly line up like you do good and get, you get good back. Um, and so we've kind of got this idea like, oh, well, if I suffer, maybe God is not with me now and I'm persecuted and things are going bad. Um, maybe God has abandoned me. But actually, Jesus says the opposite of that. In his most famous speech in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for, great, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a crazy idea. Jesus says, no, if you're persecuted, if people are reviling you and hating you and talking trash about you for my sake because you follow me, that's, that's okay. That actually, there's reward to that. It's, just, it's a good thing. And that just feels so weird to us. Now, he's not saying, bless are you if you suffer and are persecuted for any reason. Like he says, if you're persecuted for my sake, then yes, there's blessing. Because sometimes we are persecuted because we're jerks, right? 
Like people were like, oh, I stood up for what I believe and people got mad at me. I'm like, yeah, because you were a jerk about it. If you had been like maybe a little bit winsome, you could have won some uh, people over to your side, like a little bit. I had to learn that lesson too. And it, it's something I'm constantly aware of. I, years ago in our church early on, it was probably about 2010 or something, I made a disparaging comment about a group of people online, okay? You don't need all the details. It wasn't the worst thing ever, but I, I said this thing and I was just kind of off the cuff, you know? And uh, this woman like calls me out on it. She's like, why would you say that? Like, that's not gonna build any bridges by saying what you just said. And you know, if you're accused of something like that or people get mad at you, I had the reaction that a lot of us would probably have, which is she don't know me. Who does she think she is? Uh, why I, I was right. I'm allowed to say, you know, all that. And over time, I started being like, eh, she's kind of right. Like, I was, maybe I was kind of being a jerk there. Like, did what I say is true? I, I don't know, but I don't have to say it. Like, I can stand up for a living and in other ways, I could stand up and just say, this is what Jesus says, and it'll offend plenty of people. I don't need to offend people because I'm also a jerk on top of that, right? So, so I'd rather let Jesus do the offending if that's what needs to happen, you know? Um, but but, but I, I think we need to recognize that. Jesus says um, that, that, he's, that he's with us and that we are blessed if we are persecuted for his sake, not for our own. Um, and, and, and we need to remember that. Remember that God is with you even when you feel alone. When you stand up for what's right at work and you feel alone, um, you're never alone in that moment. God is with you. And I would actually say this church is with you too. I know the leadership here. And uh, we have to stand together. Um, that's one of, the, one of the values of a community like this. I feel this in our, our church in Richmond as well, is that if I stand up for something, even if it's unpopular, I'm standing with other people who will lock arms with me and, and, and we can believe together even if what we believe is a weird thing in current American views of things. And then finally this, uh, the point number three, persecution and suffering can make your faith stronger and will bring you a reward. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you'll have this crown of life. If you will endure unto death, he says you'll have a crown of life. Persecution can actually make us stronger can actually grow something inside of us that's powerful. One of my favorite scriptures in, in the New Testament is James chapter one. James is Jesus' brother. And listen to how he starts his book. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What an insane way to write a letter and, and to believe that and to say that. He says, count it all joy when what? Count it all joy when you get promoted. Count it all joy when your kids are awesome. Count it all joy when she's nice to you. Count it all joy when what? He says, count it all joy. Not that it naturally is joy, but consider it that way. When you meet trials, when you suffer, when you're persecuted, when you're in pain, when it hurts. Consider it joy. There's joy in that. Why? Because it produces something in you. It's going to make you last. It's going to make you, the word steadfast there, but it's going to make you um, be able to endure. I, I, I see this in Christians who have been Christians decades longer than me. You know those like people that have just been through some stuff and you know, like they've been through it. There, there's, there's a beauty in that. 
When people have dealt with a lot of crap and they're still standing on the other side, there's something very powerful in that. And, and, I, and I love to talk to people like that because they've seen it before. They've been through it. They're, not, they're unfaithed. They're not rattled. They've been through it and they know that, that God will see them through. They know that God is faithful. Um, but I also think your faith can grow even when God doesn't show up the way you want. When things go awful, God can show up in that too. When you pray, uh, when, you, when, when you don't get what you want, when you pray and she still passes away, when you pray and you lose that job, when you pray and that relationship never gets restored, when you pray and the diagnosis that you got doesn't change, what happens then? Will we still follow God then? Will we still love him? Because I like to love God when he's good to me and I'm getting what I want. That's how I prefer it to be. If God's gonna give me pain, give me like a little bit and make it about something I don't care about too much. You know, that's, that would be my preference. But if I only love God when he's good to me or I'm getting what I want, at the end of the day, I'm only, I'm only loving a caricature of God. I'm loving the God I wish he was. I'm not loving the true God who, who might contradict me, who any real relationship is gonna contradict you. So there needs to be some struggle. There needs to be some white water. There needs to be some rough edges there as God tells me things I might not wanna hear or, or shows me things I might not wanna believe. Um, uh, I think what happens when we don't get what we want and we end up suffering, I think what happens, what can happen there is that our faith can grow um, because we come face to face with the shallowness of our faith. We come face to face with the idea that we only believe in God who does good things for us. Um, and, and, and we can grow and, and love God for who he truly is when the good and the bad come. Here's, here's the point. And if you don't remember anything else I say, um, I, I want you to remember this. God does not promise to take our suffering away. He promises to make our suffering count. You're going to suffer either way. No one here gets out alive. We're all, we're all gonna go through it. What Jesus promises us is that it's gonna matter for something, that we're building towards something, that there's, there's a way forward that, that, that can be better. So maybe God is allowing our suffering. Maybe he's allowing persecution. Maybe he sends fire to the church to refine the church and grow us. I think this is the lesson from Smyrna. Christians may not have always had the wind at their backs, but they can still grow in spite of the pain. You see that in modern-day China. You see that in Sierra Leone, where a million-plus people have come to Christ over the last two decades. Um, in, in hard situations, God can still grow us. Nassim Taleb wrote a book, uh, I read it in 2015. Uh, maybe you've heard of it or maybe you've read it or the concept, the book's called Anti-Fragile. And um, I love the idea ever since I heard of it. So he says, what's the opposite of fragile? If I asked you that, what's the opposite of fragile? We would say resilient, robust, something like that. But he said, no, that's not it because when fragile means when you add pressure to it, it breaks. So think of a vase. A vase is fragile because if you add pressure to it, it'll crack. So the opposite of fragile is not you add pressure to it and it stays strong. The opposite is you add pressure to it and it gets stronger. And he said, we don't have a word for that in English, really. 
And so that's why he calls it anti-fragile. The more pressure you add to it, the stronger it gets. When I first heard that concept, I was like, that's brilliant. What are the things that get stronger the more pressure you add to them? And I thought, what would an, and I started a thought experiment, like what would an anti-fragile marriage look like? What would anti-fragile parenting look like? What would, you know, what, different arenas of life. What would it look like if they were anti-fragile? But the thing I really thought the most was the church is anti-fragile. It always has been. Persecution of Polycarp and others, um, the church grows from this. You try to force it underground, it grows. The, the church is anti-fragile. Um, and, and, and as pressure comes, it can grow. And what's true for the church is true for us as believers as well. As the persecution comes, we can grow. Now, I don't want the persecution. I don't sign up for it. I've experienced some of it in, in Richmond over the last 14 years or so. And so the temptation when you've experienced it or you've been canceled or whatever, the temptation, especially for someone who speaks publicly, the temptation is to just not say anything offensive at all right? Or if you're going to say something offensive, say it up in Northern Virginia, not at your home church, so that you don't have to worry about it, right? But, um, but I have to stand with conviction and say this is what is true. This is what God has called us to. Um, this, is, this is the way to, uh, of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to show up and speak of your convictions, is to follow him. Uh, Jesus, was, he went to the cross, and he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross. So he challenges us to follow him to um, what seems like a, a, a dark, uh, down a, a hard path. It's going to be hard, but we can endure. Now, all of this that I've just told you sounds like a really bad recruiting speech for Christianity, right? Sign up and suffer. Who wants, who wants some, right? This is not what you're going to hear on TV about Christianity. This is not like God's going to bless you and you're going to bloom where you're planted and it's going to be amazing and whatever. This is, this is the opposite of that, but this is the real stuff. It can be hard and there's pain, but the, the suffering is going to count. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, come on board. We can baptize you today. Someone's already baptized this morning. Like, uh, give your life to him. Get baptized um, and, and join us as we, as we link arms and stand together um, to, to handle whatever Satan's going to throw at us. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for this community and uh, the way it has endured. Um, being in Northern Virginia is its own pressure cooker, and I pray that um, the community here thrives and grows and people link arms and stand together and that they, in doing so, they the suffering counts for something and they learn to get closer to you and be in a real relationship with you. God, for those who are not followers of Jesus, I pray that this strange recruitment speech is that they, that they go, yeah, I want, I want in. Um, and I want to I know this Jesus who leads us through this. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this community. In Jesus' name, amen.